Good morning, church. Good morning. What a blessing it is to be able to be back up here with you again. So, as I was preparing uh, this week's message, uh, I was reflecting on how blessed we've been over the last few months, really, to spend so much time exclaiming what Scripture teaches regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Sunday school, we have covered the fundamentals about who Jesus is and what is salvation and the order of salvation from the pulpit. Aaron's brought the exposition about who Jesus is from the Gospel of Mark and has led us through the life of Jesus and just now we're reaching the climax of the Passion. We've had a men's study go through the book of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, we have been covering uh, a few sermons over the first chapter in Colossians. What a blessing this is. Right, as, as we've uncovered these truths and, and continued to look at all the different facets of who Jesus is, it's my prayer that this has powerfully changed you, that this has made a significant impact in your life. Regarding the importance and knowing who it is that we claim to serve. So the focus on the person and work of Jesus through all of these studies that I hope is promoted a deeper understanding, but more so, I pray that it's promoted a deeper relationship and love for our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In closing my last sermon, we looked at a number of different manifestations of who people have made Jesus out to be. Who best suits their personal interests? We looked at the mascot Jesus, right? An idol with pom-poms who encourages the followers to do whatever makes them happy. All the way to the health and wealth Jesus, who gives you everything uh, that you ever wanted monetarily and, and provided you uh, with health physically. However, we came to the ultimate conclusion that we cannot be right with God and be wrong about who Jesus is. In this epistle to the Colossian believers, Paul is combating a number of false teaching and incorrect notions regarding who is Christ. Starting in verse 15, going through 19 that we covered last time, Paul makes one of the grandest and concise statements about who is Jesus in all of Scripture. Paul has left no doubt as to the fact that Jesus is God, very God. He created all things in the heavens and earth, everything visible and invisible. He created all things, and all things were created through him and were made for him. Everything works in a perfectly conducted orchestra to bring about his end for his ultimate glory. He existed before all things, and Paul showed us Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. He is also the head of the church, and the one who is leading the body, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. With an understanding of the person of Jesus Christ and what we have been, been working towards, we will now turn our focus on the work of, excuse me, of Christ. 
So these, diff- these, these days, it's difficult to turn on the news without running into political discussions regarding global warming and climate change. It has almost grown to a hysteria with politicians seeking to change the earth with claims of all the destruction that man has imposed. Through comprehensive legislation, proposals, their their motions to bring about a transformative reconciliation to the globe through the elimination of greenhouse gases. As we will see today, there is only one man who can bring about true reconciliation. The prophet Isaiah said the earth will wear out like a garment. It is in this person, Jesus, who has reconciled all things to himself through the blood of the cross in order to present his people as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. MacArthur says there are five key words that are used to describe the richness of our salvation in Christ. Along with reconciliation, there is justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. As we have learned from Justin in Sunday school, justification is the guilty, condemned sinner standing before God and being declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave and is granted freedom. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor and the debt is paid and forgotten. In adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger but has made a son. And in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes a friend. Reconciliation means to change or exchange. With its New Testament usage, usually speaking of a change in relationship. Right? When, when two people are at enmity with each other, or opposed to each other, or hostile with one another, and they are able to reconcile and uh, are able to live at peace with one another, we would say that these two people are reconciled. However, the usage in this passage carries with it the idea of thoroughly or completely or totally reconciled. And in this sense, it is through the person of Jesus alone that we are able to fully be reconciled to God. So let's look at today's text in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be going uh, verses 20 through 23. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." So today we're going to be looking at four aspects of reconciliation covered in today's text. And conveniently, uh, each verse that we go through will uh, line up with a corresponding aspect of reconciliation. We're going to start off looking at 
uh, verse 20 being the extent of reconciliation, verse 21 being the need for reconciliation, in verse 22, we're going to be looking at the purpose of reconciliation. And finally, verse 23, we're going to be looking at the evidence of reconciliation. So looking at, at starting off in verse 20, uh, looking at the extent of reconciliation. Again, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So verse 20, if you look at it, is in the middle of a whole sentence that started out in verse 19. The verse, if you remember, starts off with saying that it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. All the fullness speaks of the deity of Christ. All the divine powers and attributes dwelt in Christ alone. Paul has explicitly laid out that in the preceding verses, that Jesus Christ is God, very God. And it is only God who can reconcile all things to himself. No mere man could ever do the work that Christ alone has accomplished, reconciling lost sinners to a holy God. So starting in in Genesis at the creation, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the verses following, we see creation tainted by the fall of man and the entrance of sin in the world. However, we see this having lasting effects, not just on man, but on the entire creation. The universe is in the process of dying with a number of factors that can be seen even by science, right? With the second law of thermodynamics that says eventually the universe will use up all the available energy, in theory, or the process of the Earth's magnetic field continuing to get weaker that could potentially expose us to the sun's harmful radiation. The Earth we live on is cursed. And with Satan as the god of this world, as described in 2 Corinthians 4.4, or him being described as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, we can almost see the world sprinting towards the tribulation where the effects of sin and Satan's influence will reach its climax. It's during this time that we will see our Lord Jesus come back, which will ultimately result in the reverse of the curse that was brought into this world by the first Adam and will be abolished completely in the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. So having looked at a little bit of what reconciliation means, being that it is thoroughly, completely, or or totally changed in our relationship with God, we also need to look at what it means that Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. So first we have to ask ourselves, what does all things mean? So if we, we look in the preceding verses, starting in 15, we see that all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. All things hold together. And he will have first place in all things. We start seeing a pattern here. We developed last sermon that in these cases, all things meant everything. Unequivocally to include both the physical and spiritual realm. So to what extent has Jesus reconciled all things to himself? 
So there are some who have taken this to mean that Jesus has reconciled all men to God in an argument for universal salvation. Universal salvation, also known as universalism, is a teaching that all beings, including those who have rejected Jesus Christ, will one day be saved. This cannot be what Paul is teaching and would flatly contradict the teaching of Scripture as a whole and specifically Paul's own teaching. As a fundamental principle in proper hermeneutics, Scripture interprets Scripture. This in combination with the fact that we know Scripture will never contradict itself. Paul clearly taught that sinners needed to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Still others would say that this is a potential atonement, that Christ died for all men, and only those who would receive him would be saved, and those who would reject him would go to hell. The problem with this is that is not what this verse is saying. There isn't a potential atonement. There was an actual accomplishment on the cross in which all things were reconciled to Jesus Christ. In John 19.30, when Jesus says it is finished, there was a completion of the work that the Father had given him to do. Nowhere does this indicate that Jesus did his part and then the rest is up to us. No, it is Christ's accomplishment on the cross in his shedding his own blood which reconciled all things to himself. And this is regardless of how all things respond to him. We must not get universal reconciliation confused with universal or potential salvation. So what was the result of this accomplishment? The, the universal reconciliation on the cross. Well, he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father. He was given all authority on heaven and on earth. And all creation that he brought into existence is brought into submission. In Ephesians 1, 21 through 22, it speaks of Christ's position as being far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things into subjection under his feet. Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In this sense, all things, whether Christ's elect that were given to him by the Father for salvation, or the unredeemed men and fallen angels for judgment, will all bow the knee in subjection to the King. Either those covered under the blood of the cross or those who were his enemies for final judgment and thrown into the lake of fire. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, will be reconciled to him. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 25 through 28 say, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So here we see Christ is working out the process of bringing all things into subjection under his feet. As we see it playing out in history. Where Satan will ultimately be stripped 
of all the power of death at the end of the age. But continuing, Paul wants to point out that when he says all things will be subject under Christ's feet, that he is not talking about the Father. So diving back into the verse, but when he says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that he uh, accepted or, or exempted to put all things into subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, being Jesus, then, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Why? So that God may be all in all. So notice the initial statement that Christ alone is doing the reconciling. It is he himself who will be reconciling all things to himself. The idea of putting all things into subjection under his feet carries with it the idea of a conquered foe being brought before the king in the king's throne room and being forced to bow. And in an ultimate show of devastation of that conquered foe, the king would put his foot on the neck In this, in this way, this, this happened as a result of, of Christ subjecting all things to himself. There isn't one thing. All things, in, without exception, will be brought into subjection to Christ, both in the heavens and the earth. There will be nothing outside the reign of Christ, with the obvious exception of the Father. Christ will reconcile all things for the ultimate purpose of God's glory and his rightful place over all things. So then Paul moves from the universal sense of reconciliation to the particular reconciliation of the Colossian believers in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 21 So here we look at the need for reconciliation as Paul speaks of the former life of the believers in Colossae and by extension us. Here Paul illustrates the drastic contrast between our new lives in reconciliation with God and the lives we all lived prior to coming to Christ. Church, this is the heart of the gospel. This truth is what makes the gospel so vivid and alive to those who are convicted of their sin. Alienation means estranged or cut off or separated. We see the former lives we lived played out in places such as Romans 3 and Romans 6 and Galatians chapter 5 and Colossians 3. Our former lives we lived in alienation and an enmity with God. So as we take a look at Romans 3, 10 through 18, you guys are very familiar with it by now, as we've covered it quite extensively over the last few weeks, starting in in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now notice the repetition of some key words throughout this passage. None. No one. All. Clearly explains the encompassing and widespread impacts of our condition before coming to Christ. As we continue in the following verses, let's look at the degree of depravity of an unrepentant heart. Looking at Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarn you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 6 says that we are slaves to sin. Colossians 3, later in Colossians, and starting in verse 5, again we see Paul launch into a whole nother litany of, of words to describe our depravity. So we should consider the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. It's almost as if Paul stopped and thought, of all the words he had ever heard to describe the depths of man's depravity. And he put them all together and clearly laid them out before his readers in an effort to contrast the perfectly holy God and unrepentant man. It is true that unrepentant man is alienated or cut off from God because of their sin. But Paul makes it a point to take it a step further. He's pointing out the hostility which we formerly had towards God. This exposes the attitude of man, the hatred that is exhibited towards God because the engagement in evil deeds. It is scripture that teaches that man's love of evil in John three nineteen through 20 says men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who hates the light. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Paul couldn't lay it out more plainly. Unrepentant man is not ignorant. Unrepentant man willfully hates God and rails against him in enmity. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There will be no man who does not get what he justly deserves and they cannot claim that they didn't know this adversarial and combative action against the maker of the universe the sustainer of all things if we've learned anything through reading the pages of the old testament god's wrath against his enemies is severe 
the prophets wrote such things as God takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. We see this with consistently carried through to the New Testament text as it speaks of the wrath of God towards his enemies in a number of places. One in particular is Ephesians 5. Uh, Verse 6, where the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God culminates in eternal punishment and is something that should be feared. These are incredibly difficult truths to hear and to think about, but highlights greatly the need for reconciliation. God's wrath had to be appeased for sinners to be reconciled to God. To lessen the sting of this truth is to rob the good news of the gospel. Some take offense at the idea of God's wrath and recoil at the thought of his judgment. But we know that everything that God does is good and he is perfectly just in doing so. It is only through the precious blood of Jesus on Calvary that we can be freed from the alienation and the enmity we have with God. Through the forgiveness of sins. Romans 5 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. Church, Christ's reconciliation on the cross should move us. If it doesn't, then we don't appreciate the depths of our depravity and the offense that we have committed against God. Family, this is who we were. In the past. But we have been given a new life. In fact we are in Christ. We have been reconciled to God in a right relationship. Where we are no longer hostile towards God. But can call him friend. This should move us to be quick. To share with those who do not profess or know Christ. Friends. And family. And strangers need to be told of the good news of the gospel and the hope we have as ones who have been reconciled to God. After coming face to face with the depths of our sin, the thought of reconciliation is so sweet that I have seen strong men move to tears in the recognition of being free of the burden of the sin and being alive to Christ. So if we have been saved from the wrath of God and been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. But for what purpose have we been reconciled? So now we're going to move to verse 22 where we're going to look at the purpose of reconciliation. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Here, Paul has taken the reconciliation of all things in verse 20 to the problem that was presented in verse 21 and distills it down to the root of the reason or purpose, which was to present his people before the Father as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul, however, starts off the verse with saying that he reconciled us in his fleshly body. Now, to me, initially looking at this, it may seem redundant that Paul would say that Christ has reconciled us in his fleshly body. 
However, the Colossian believers were facing a number of false teachers who claimed that Jesus was a spirit and one of many emanations on the way to a right relationship with God. And here we see Paul continue to strike down the false notion that Jesus was just a created being or something less than our all-sufficient Savior. Romans 8.3 tells us that God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ died as a man for men in order that there could be reconciliation. It is God's ultimate purpose in reconciliation to present His elect holy, pure, set apart, and spotless before Him. Without the substitutionary death on the cross, there would be no possible way that we could stand before God purified of our sins. Holiness means just that, to be set apart or dedicated. And in this sense, through what Christ accomplished on the cross, we can be separated from our sins and set apart unto God. Because of the faith in Jesus Christ, God is able to look at believers and see us as holy on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This is a personal holiness. God has not made peace through the blood of the cross, as we saw in verse 20, for the purpose of us continuing to be rebels against Him. He has reconciled us in order that we can be holy as He is holy by the power of the Spirit. In addition to holiness, Christ's reconciliation causes us to be blameless. Or in other words, without a spot or without a blemish. As we see, this is a term familiar to us, but usually we see it in the context of the Old Testament when referring to a sacrificial animal that had to be without blemish. As we switch to the New Testament, we see Christ portrayed as the spotless lamb. But in reference to ourselves, reconciliation gives us a blameless character. Finally, we see the last purpose of reconciliation as being beyond reproach, that we can be beyond reproach. And usually, again, we see this when talking about the qualifications of elders and that they are to be beyond reproach. In the same way as intended for elders, beyond reproach means that no one will be able to bring a charge against us. Satan stands as our accuser, pointing out all the ways in which we have transgressed God's laws. In a twist of irony, the deceiver, the father of lies, will finally be telling the truth, presenting my sins and all of my failings before God. But on the account of what Christ has done on the cross, Satan will not be able to make one charge stick against those who are reconciled to Christ. And what a comfort that should be. Family, before Christ, we are reconciled to be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I don't want us to miss this. We have already, in position, have a perfect standing in Christ Jesus. Reconciliation has already been accomplished. We are seen by God as perfect in that we are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. 
Saints, are you continually beating yourself up over your sin and seeing yourself in light of all of your failures? Or are you viewing yourself in your new position as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach? It is not a matter of how we view ourselves, how we think we look in our own sight. It matters what we look like or how we are viewed in the sight of God. That said, we are practically working out our salvation in order to make our practice align with what Christ has already obtained positionally. We are to put on our new lives in Christ, and as Paul points out later in the epistle, that the new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We need to hate our sin and fight for holiness in our lives. We should, as Christians, be striving to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is the purpose of reconciliation, that we should look more like Christ with every passing moment. The sins that we struggled with when we first came to Christ should not be to the same extent as we mature in our Christian walks. So the wonderful truth of our position in Christ and the promise of being holy and blameless and without reproach, comes with initially what is first posed as a condition, but it should be as evidence of our secured position in Christ. The evidence of reconciliation as we move to our last verse in verse 23 of our text today, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. We have covered extensively over the last several weeks in the Sunday school and the sermons from the pulpit, man cannot earn his own way to salvation. We cannot be good enough or perform enough good acts to be considered worthy of salvation. Paul is not saying that Christ reconciled us if only we persist in our faith in order to continue to keep our salvation. Instead, true Christian faith is seen as the patient and steadfast day-to-day Christian living. Our Christian lives are not a sprint, but a lifelong race spent removing the old man who is at enmity with God and putting on our new lives in Christ. This is illustrated well when we look at the parables of the sowers or the, the soils. We see that the seeds that fell among the rocky soil grew up and then it withered away due to a lack of moisture. Jesus explained, those on the rocky soil are those when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. By withering and falling away, they give evidence to the fact that they were never truly saved. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. Steve Lawson said, and this is a tongue twister, A faith that fizzles before the finish was fatally flawed from the first. 
yeah, I can't do that. Perseverance is a staple that should be exhibited by all true saints. To be steadfast and firmly established in the faith requires painstaking work. To build a house on the rocks, laying a solid foundation in the person and work of Jesus Christ is paramount. The gospel that we have heard is something that we should continually preach to ourselves. Getting our nose in the book and carrying out the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them does not in and of itself save us, but provides proof that we are. We are equipped with the greatest news of Christ's reconciliation of us to him. And as such, we should not only hold fast to the incredible hope of the gospel in looking forward to Christ's return, but to share it with the world. In closing, we have looked at the extent of reconciliation in that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. The need for reconciled uh, reconciliation that we are all alienated and hostile towards God in our former lives. The purpose of reconciliation in that Jesus is presenting us as holy and blameless and without reproach. And finally, the evidence of reconciliation in that we need to persevere until the end as evidence of the position that we already have in Christ Jesus. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Christ's work of reconciliation is vitally important to our lives. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17-21 will help us illustrate, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. How all... How all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, We beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We deserve God's wrath. But through the death of his son, God's wrath has been appeased, and we have been reconciled to Christ. Jesus accomplished reconciliation on the cross, and his righteousness is ours by faith. We are new creatures, ones who desire to be like Christ, no longer enemies of him, alienated by sin. Sin and death have been defeated, and instead we have been granted eternal life. Church family, make no mistake about it. Jesus has reconciled all things to himself for his ultimate glory. Every professing believer needs to test their faith and examine our own heart to be sure we are children of God. Be reconciled to God. There are only two types of people in this world. Those who will stand judged because of the sin they have committed against God and those who will stand justified 
on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. There is no gray area or middle ground on this. Be reconciled to God and glorify him in your life by killing the old man and the depths of sin that characterized our lives before coming to Christ. Pursue holiness, knowing we are spotless and beyond reproach on the basis of what Christ alone has accomplished on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, how blessed we are. Lord, that positionally we can stand blameless, holy, and beyond reproach, not on the basis of our good works, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but solely on the work of your son Jesus. Lord, we're so thankful that he accomplished salvation for us. Lord, that we can call you friend, that we can be in a right relationship with you and not enemies. Lord, I would ask that you would help us, each one of us, to have a desire to know you more. Lord, that we would have an insatiable desire to read your word, to share your gospel, to love one another. Lord, and to be able to kill sin, to put off the old man and to put on the new. Trust in you by faith. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.